0: You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com.
1: One of the great pleasures of this job is being able to feature on a regular basis literature we love. Not feeling kind of obligated through co-op money or um, you know profit motive, uh, just choosing work that we really really enjoy, and we're so blessed in this place also to be featuring you know mostly that kind of work. And both our authors tonight uh, are exactly such writers, writers who we love ever so much. And so to have them both here tonight uh, is really such an honor and such a pleasure. Um, the book that we're celebrating is called In the House*, a Memoir. Uh, it is published by our friends at Grey Wolf Press, which we've had a long-standing relationship with for many, many years. Uh, tonight's event is also co-sponsored by three groups. They have a table in the back, which I am hoping each of you will get a chance to visit. We have a wonderful sheet of resources that's a giveaway. Actually, there's a bunch of other stuff back there, too, that I'm hoping you'll pick up. Um, the Asian Women's Shelter, Kuov, uh, Communities United Against Violence, survived and punished, and uh, thank you to them all for for all their efforts in bringing this night together. And moreover, uh, for saving lives, which is huge. Uh, also, want to thank Marisa Atkinson at Greywolf uh, and Hagen Shim. Uh, they were both fantastic in in really making this gel. So. Uh, I'm shaking. (laughs) So Carmen Maria Machado is the author of *Her Body and Other Parties*, uh, a finalist for the National Book Award, recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship. Uh, She's a writer in residence at the University of Pennsylvania and makes her home in Pennsylvania with her wife. Uh, Joining her tonight is Esme Weijun Wang, who's the author of *The Collected Schizophrenias* and The Border of Paradise. Uh, She received a Whiting Award in 2018 and was named one of Granta's Best of Young American Novelists of 2017. Uh, As I mentioned earlier tonight, the way we're going to proceed is we're going to have Ms. Machado uh, read an excerpt from the book. And then there's going to be a conversation. And then I've already given some cards out to those of you who want to ask questions. Um, I still have some cards. And what I can do is, as I'm collecting cards, I can kind of go around and just give you some little pencils and some some extra cards for those of you who have you know, been inspired. So the way the signing is going to work is I'm trying to get everybody to that side of the room and have the line go out and down the stairs. There are plenty of books at the counter, and the way we're going to do it is I have some Post-its. If you would write to whom you would like to inscribe, that would be awesome. And uh, if you just want to sign, just write sign. Um, I'd like to welcome now the editorial director of Grey Wolf Press. We're really honored to have him with us here tonight. Somebody we've known for ages, a really dear friend. I'd like to welcome Ethan Nasowski. Um, thank you, Peter. Thank you, all this
0: amazing crowd. I'm um, going to be super brief. Uh, we're really fortunate at Grey Wolf to publish both Carmen and Esme, and um, one of the things that we try to do when we publish certain kinds of nonfiction is we're really interested in stories that add... To the con- conversation that we're having in the culture, um, and so we're obviously looking. For, you know, we're a literary press, and we look for books that are really well written. Um, we often look for books that are documenting or bearing witness to very difficult experiences. And both of these, both books by Esme and Carmen, do that um, with Esme's Eclectic six and with Carmen's *In the Dreamhouse*. But they don't only document and bear witness; they help us think about them, and through that, they um, help us. Um, really engage and um, make the world richer and hopefully a little bit more hopeful even amidst the kind of trauma and difficulty that they often document in their writing. So it's a great privilege to um, work with a publisher that's able to um, help um, this work uh, reach all of you. Um, and I also wanted to take an extra minute to really thank Heijin Shim um, who um, yeah, I'd say one of the things we try to do with some of our books is that you know we want them to be great literary artifacts in a way, but we also want them to enter the world and recognize that they have an effect in the world, and um, and uh, with, with books that sometimes um, deal with very traumatic material, we want to. Think about thoughtfully about um, uh, people who might be attending and might be experiencing trauma. And Hagen really helped us prepare materials, one sheets that are available as resources to anybody ex- who are survivors and experiencing trauma. And so those are available. And Hagen really um, helped us uh, um, help us publish a book thoughtfully, which is part of what we like to do. So you did not come to see me tonight, so I'm going to uh, let Carmen me. Thank you.
2: so good to see all of you. Um, I lived in the Bay Area a very long time ago, and I remember when I first moved here saying, I actually lived in a East Bay, but I was like, oh, I'm going to go to San Francisco. And I, I came, and I walked around, and I remember walking around Chinatown, and I was like, well, I think there's a bookstore near here, and I came into City Lights. And never a million years did I think that I would be standing here in City Lights reading from a book that I wrote, much less the second book that I wrote, which is very weird. Um, so yeah, it's a real honor to be here. Uh, thank you so much for coming out. <clears throat> um, I'm going to be reading a little bit from the Dream House, and that's when I'm going to be speaking. Um, I don't think there's much I need to tell you. Can you all hear me okay? Is the volume good? Excellent. Yes, <clears throat> Dream House as luck of the draw. Part of the problem was, as a weird fat girl, you felt lucky. She did what you'd wish a million others had done, looked past arbitrary markers of social currency and seen your brain and ferocious talent and quick wit and pugnacious approach to assholes. When you first started writing about fatness a long time ago in your live journal, who here was on live journal? I miss it every day. Every day. A commenter said to you that you were pretty and smart and charming, but as long as you were Zofte, you'd never have your choice of lovers. You remember feeling outrage and then processing the reality, the practicality of what he'd said. You were so angry at the world. You wondered when she came along if this was what most people got to experience in their lives a straight line from want to satisfaction, desire manifested and satisfied in reasonable succession. This had never been the case before. It had always been fraught. How many times had you said, if I just looked a little different, I'd be drowning in love? Now you get to drown without needing to change a single cell. Lucky you. Dream House as Bluebeard. Bluebeard's greatest lie was that there was only one rule. The newest wife could do anything she wanted, anything as long as she didn't do that single, arbitrary thing, didn't stick that tiny, inconsequential key into that tiny, inconsequential lock. But we all know that was just the beginning, a test. She failed, and lived to tell the tale, as I have. But even if she'd passed, even if she'd listened, there'd have been some other request, a little larger, a little stranger, and if she'd kept going kept allowing herself to be trained like a corset fanatic pinching her waist, smaller and smaller. There would have been a scene where Bluebeard danced around with the rotting corpses of his past wives, clasping his arms, and the newest wife would have sat there mutely, suppressing, growing horror, swallowing the egg of vomit that bobbed behind her breastbone. And then later, another scene in which she did unspeakable things to the bodies. Women. They'd once been women. And she just stared down into the middle distance, seeking a purgatory where she can live forever. Some scholars believe that Bluebeard's Bluebeard is a symbol of his supernatural nature, nature, easier to accept than being brought to heal by a simple man. But isn't that the joke? He can be simple, and she doesn't have to be a man. Because she hadn't blinked at the key and its conditions, hadn't paused when he told her her footfalls were too heavy for his liking, hadn't protested when he fucked her while she wept, Hadn't declined when he suggested that she stop speaking. Hadn't said a word when he left bruises on her arms. Hadn't scolded him for speaking to her like she was a dog or a child. Hadn't run screaming down the path from the castle into the nearest village, pleading with someone to help, help, help. It made logical sense that she sat there and watched him spinning around the body of wife number four, its decaying head flopping backward on a hinge of flesh. This is how you are toughened, the newest wife reasoned. This is where the tenacity of love is practiced, its tensile strength, its durability. You are being tested, and you are passing the test. Sweet girl, sweet self, look how good you are. Look how loyal, look how loved. Dream house is appetite. You make a mistake early on though you don't know it at the time. You admit to her that you are constantly nursing low-grade crushes on many people in your life. Nothing acted on, just that you find many people attractive and do your best to surround yourself with smart and funny minds, and the result is a gooey, lovely space somewhere between Philia and Eros. You've been this way as long as you can remember. You've always found this quirk of your personality to be just that, a quirk, and she laughs and says she's charmed by it. Over the course of your relationship, she will accuse you of fucking or wanting to fuck or planning to fuck the following people. Your roommate, your roommate's girlfriend, dozens of your friends, the clarion class you haven't even met yet, a dozen of her friends, then a few of her colleagues in Indiana, her ex-girlfriend, her ex-boyfriend, your ex-boyfriend, several of your teachers, the director of your MFA program, several of your students, one of your doctors, and in perhaps the most demented moment of this exercise, her father. Also, an untold litany of strangers—people on the subway and in coffee shops, waiters at restaurants, store clerks and grocery store cashiers, and librarians and ticket takers and janitors and museum goers and beach sleepers. The problem of denial sounds like confession to her, and so the burden of proof is forced upon you to show that you have not been fucking those people. You become adept at doing searches on their phone, providing evidence you haven't been in contact with anyone. You stop talking about a promising student in one of your classes because she becomes fixated on the idea that you have a crush on a 19-year-old who has just learned how to balance exposition and see. One day, as she rubs her fingers over your clips and you close your eyes in pleasure, she grabs your face and twists it toward her. She gets so close to you, you smells something sour on her breath. Who are you thinking about, she says. It's phrased like a question, but it isn't. Your mouth moves, but nothing comes out, and she squeezes her jaw a little harder. Look at me, when I fuck you, she says. You pretend to come. Dream house is the river life. Later that fall, she asks you to join her at the Harvard-Yale football game. It is a favorite tradition of hers, when she has flown there for the occasion, but has to be back in Indiana earlier than expected. If you drive there, you can bring me back, she says. And so you drive from Iowa to Connecticut to meet her. And so after a day of autumn temperatures, and flask sips, and people in furs, and bottles of champagne rolling around on the ground like unwinded hands, you sleep hard in an uncomfortable hotel bed. The next afternoon, you prepare to leave. She is a reckless driver. Nothing has changed that trip to Savannah, even so you get behind the wheel of your car without asking. You pull away from New Haven, sharing between the radio, conversation, and silence. You scoop down through Connecticut and New York. In Pennsylvania the light drops away early and rain blossoms the pavement. Somewhere in the middle of the endless, hilly length of this state, the one you'd grown up in, she interrupts herself mid sentence. Why won't you let me drive? she asks. Her voice is controlled, measured, like a dog whose tail has gone rigid. Nothing is happening. Something is wrong. I'm okay driving, you say. You're tired, she says. Too tired to drive. I'm not, you say, and you aren't. You're too tired and you're going to kill us, she says. You hate me, you want me to die. I don't hate you, you say. I don't want you to die. You hate me, she says. Her voice will go up half an octave with every syllable. You're going to kill us and you don't even care. You selfish bitch. I... You selfish bitch. She begins to pound the dashboard. You selfish bitch, you selfish bitch, you selfish... You pull off at the next exit and park at a gas station. She throws open the passenger door, even before the car stops moving and stalks around the parking lot like a teenage boy trying to cool down before he punches a wall. You sit in the driver's seat, watching her pace. The urge to cry is present, but far off, like you're high. When she starts walking back toward the car, her eyes fixed on your face, you hastily unbuckle your seatbelt and run to the passenger side. You don't want her to leave without you, and you're not sure she won't. Afterward, the drive is framed by wet, dark mountains. You remember going through Pennsylvania around Christmas the year before and seeing 18-wheelers overturned on the side of these same roads, their engine blocks blackened by extinguished fires, and cars, too, on the highway shoulder, casually burning. She goes 80, 90 miles per hour, and you have to look away from the climbing needle. The shadowy shapes of deer pass in front of you through curtains of rain. I'm going to die, you think. You pray for a cop to pull you over, watching the side mirror for blue and red lights that never appear. You clutch the door when she accelerates, when the car rips weightlessly over a hill. Stop that, she says, and goes even faster. Sleep, she commands, but you cannot sleep. Midnight comes. You enter Ohio, a state you've always found very boring to drive across, but now your adrenaline makes your hands tremble in your lap. You drive past dead animals by the dozens, raccoons blasted apart by speeding tires, deer whose muscular animal bodies are contorted like that of fallen dancers. The rain slows, and then stops, and you enter Indiana. In the final stretch, when she exits the main highway and takes a two-lane country road south to Bloomington, the car begins to yawn to the left, kissing the double line, surpassing it, and then to the right where the door passes within inches of a metal barrier. When you look over, the back of her skull is touching the headrest. her eyes closed. You bark her name, and the car lights itself. Now you're too tired, you say, Please let me do this, we're almost there. I'm fine, she says, my body is my bench, I can make it do whatever I want. Please pull over. She curls her lip, but doesn't say anything else, and doesn't stop. Every so often the car swerves. You pass a religious billboard that asks if you know you'll go after death. In full daylight, this sort of propaganda would make you blow your eyes, but now it tugs on old childhood fear, and you whimper and then try, too late, to swallow the sound. When you first came to Bloomington, when you helped her find the dream house, it was impossibly bright. It was late spring, and the trees were electric, new-growth neon rain. Now the leaves burn in red and orange and brown ones spiral away from the branches. The season is dying, and you will die too, you are certain, this night. The car pulls into the driveway around four in the morning and sits there in silence. You feel her going to throw up. The leaves drop onto the car's roof, and the wind stretches them away with a papery scrape. Finally, she reaches to unbuckle her seatbelt, but you are watching the lawn. Two dark shapes are crossing it, like dogs, but not coyotes. It would have been a lovely sight at any time, but in contrast to the men's terrors, it is so beautiful your face tingles. Look, you say softly, pointing. She starts, as if you struck her. Then she sees what you see. You wait for her coup, for her sweetness. Fuck you, she says. She leans toward you and speaks directly into your ear. You say look without saying anything else. I think you're fucking up when out someone is going to fucking kill us. It's the middle of the night. What the fuck is wrong with you? She kicks open the car door. The coyotes vote for the trees. You watch her stomp through the dream house. Her silhouette is thrown against a series of illuminated windows, kitchen, bathroom, bedroom, and then all the lights go out. You get out of the car and sit against the side of the house, putting on your winter coat backward like a snot. The coyotes come back after a while, trotting casually across the lawn. deer too, and foxes, all paying you no mind, as if you were part of the scenery, as if you are not there at all. You could go to bed, too. Or you could sit at the table in the kitchen and watch the scene from behind the window pane, but that, you think, would be like putting this night in a museum, removed, too soon forgotten. Sit with this, you think. Don't forget this is happening. Tomorrow you will push this away, but here, remember. Your butt goes numb in the grass. The lawn is a theater of wildlife. Your little car, stalwart as any stallion, sits silent and bright in the driveway, finally cooling down after her long drive. Birds twitter early morning code so from the trees. A gaggle of drum students press the hill at the edge of the golf course and stands there looking at you perhaps believing you to be a ghost before shuffling down onto the street. And in the same way that the wrist rotates faster when the door latch is about to release, the pre-dawn night speeds up just a little before the day comes. And though it would not be into the next summer solstice that you be free from her, though you would spend the season's precipitous drop into darkness alongside her, on this morning light seeps into the sky and you are present with your body and your mind and you do not forget. In the morning... The woman who made you ill with fear pours a pot of coffee and jokes with you and kisses you and sweetly scratches your scalp like nothing has happened. And as though you slept, a new day begins again. I want you one I feel like it's a to end on that one. That's I was having Dreamhouse as Natural Disaster. I get bad heartburn. It's the Zoloft which takes the edge off my anxiety but brings along a bunch of awful side effects like a good friend who can't shot a bad lover. Every so often I take my knit in beds and within a few minutes feel as though a hot poker has been shoved at my esophagus. I chew antacids and walk to the bathroom. Often the pain or the force of the neutralization makes me vomit. I become functionally everyone's favorite science fair project. When I bend over the toilet, I think a lot about how my heart is a volcano, like that quote from Khalil Gibran. It's dumb, but it moved me. And I wrote down a post-it note that I stuff on my desk. If your heart is a volcano, how shall you expect flowers to bloom in your hands? i stayed there until a bad day, working on this book, when I suddenly loathed the quote with every ember of my being, and so crumpled it up and threw it away. Reader, do you remember that ridiculous movie volcano, the one with Tommy Lee Jones? Do you guys remember how they stopped the eruption in the middle of downtown Los Angeles? They diverted it with cement roadblocks and pointed fire hoses at it. And then we the lava to the ocean and everything was fine. <laughs> Sweet reader, that is not how lava works. Anyone can tell you that. Here's the truth. I keep waiting for my anger to go dormant, but it won't. I keep waiting for someone to reroute my anger into the ocean, but no one can. My heart is closer to Dante's peak of Dante's peak. My anger dissolves grandmas and acid lakes and raises quaint Pacific Northwest towns with ash and asphyxiates jet engines with its grit. Lava keeps leaking down my slopes. You should have listened to the scientist. You should have evacuated earlier. So, Khalil Gabon. I know what he's saying, but even rhetorically, he's making exactly the wrong point. The fact is, People settle their volcanoes because the resulting soil is extraordinary, dense with nutrients from the ash. In this dangerous place, their fruit is sweeter, their crops taller, their flowers more radiant, their yield more bountiful. The truth is, there's no better place to live than in the shadow of a beautiful, furious mountain. Thank you. Thank you.
3: So it's our turn now. Yeah. yeah. Now it's, it's the carbon in <laughs> <that's my> show. Okay. <laughs> I know I feel like throwing up. So God. I just want to tell everybody, um, make sure you drink a lot of water tonight. That's my tip. My hot tip. Um, We were just talking like not long before we came in here um, about like touring and when you have a really intense book and (laughs) when you're like go back to the hotel room all by yourself and you're alone and just drinking a lot of water. That's a good tip, yeah, okay. Um, So my first question, um, moving to In the Dream House after... Her body and other parties. When did you know that a memoir was going to be your second book and in particular a memoir about this and what was your inner response to that realization? Oh.
2: So I feel like the realization that this would be my second book was actually really late. Um the weird thing they don't tell you about writing a second book is that like for so long when you have a first book that's like in production or you've written it, or it's in production, or it's just come out, is so it's really hard to, like, think past it, or at least that's been my experience. So I feel like I had this idea where I was like, great, Graham was publishing my first book, my book, my one book, the thing that was in my brain, and now it's not in my brain anymore, because now it's <laughs> on the page. Um, yeah, well, guess my job here is done, you know, that's sort of the end of that. Um, and I couldn't, like, imagine, like, what else am I even interested in? Like, what else, like, what else do I have up here? And for a long time, I think I didn't really have a sense of that. I had no sense past her body and other parties. But then while I was sort of in the process of um, editing her body and other parties, I also was working on, so after Ralph had bought it, but before it came out, I was in the process of just sort of trying to deal with a lot of this material in whatever way I sort of knew how to do. Um, and, and it was only when I, at some point I realized I had enough that was sort of a very loose draft and then I decided to show it to Grey Wolf and show it to Ethan and to, it to my agent. Um, then I said I was like, "Oh, maybe my second book is going to be a memoir," but it wasn't like that. Was like an act of thought. It wasn't like, "Cool, now I do the memoir." It was like it was just like, "Oh, oops, I accidentally pooped out a memoir," you know? It was like so. It felt like a little a little more random. And, and I've been sort of talking about it in terms of like very bodily, like that word is not an accident. So I feel like a lot of it has been like I think of this book as like a kidney stone I had to pass like it was like a thing I had to get out of my own way basically because like I there's all these things I want to write and now I actually can't imagine like lots of other books and lots of other projects and like I have lots of ideas and I have notes for a lot of stuff and I'm really excited to like have a a career where I get to like do a lot of different things Mm -hmm. and I feel like this book was actually a book that I had to just get out of my own way like I had to pass it I had to like puncture the boil. I had to, I mean, it's, it's all disgusting. Every medical disgust. But it's like, it was like I had a thing in my body that was like pulling my skeleton out of alignment, and I couldn't like get to anything else until I like had figured, had taken care of that thing. Um, so, so it, even though I wasn't really like ha- happy to write it, like I had to, I thought ha- I, like I had to. Um, it was like important that I do it, and I kind of get it out of my system, out of my own life.
3: Okay, but the way you have to understand like as somebody, okay, so I also write, but as if you're listening to this as somebody who doesn't write, it sounds almost like because you say I wasn't thinking about writing it, this was something that almost it sounds like you were kind of um, kind of uh, processing the material through writing anyway, um, even though you weren't thinking about it as a book. How how was that happening? Was were you because it you know do you know what I mean? Because you almost said like and then all of a sudden I had this material that I could show a grey wolf and, right. and how do, so how does that happen if you're not writing it? <laughs> Good
2: question. Um, I mean I so basically for years I had sort of tried to write like straight in a straightforward way about what had happened and I'd just sort of write these like very plotting pages that were just like then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. It was dreadful. It was, like, truly dreadful. And I remember a friend, like, showing a friend something I was working on, and she, like, I sent it to her, and then she got back here, like, a week later, and she was, like, okay. So she was, like, so here's the thing. She's, like, you're not, you're a great, you're a good writer. You're a great writer. You're, like, these sentences are beautiful. But, like, you're already different today than you were a week ago when you gave me this piece of writing, which indicates to me that you are not in the place where you should be, like writing, because you're still like this was like very early on. It's just like long before any of this happened, and so or this was long before like the book was even an idea in my brain. So I was like, okay, so clearly like I'm in this process where I'm doing some stuff mentally, and I'm moving in a certain direction, and like it'd be helpful to maybe just like sit with that, like go to therapy and like do all the things I need to do, and not try to like write about it or like pin it down with writing. Because like once you commit a thing to the page, it's like you're sort of creating a kind of like, archive or, like, memory of it, you're kind of, like, you're sort of, like, creating a an impression of it, mm-hmm. um, and that's, if you're still, like, really in in the shift, like, whatever is going on, it, you're constantly moving past it, and then it's, like, what have you been writing about? So, so, yeah, and so, and then it, at some point, I feel like that process slowed down a lot, and that was also when I got the idea for the form, and then the, that's the, sort of the marriage of those two things, like, figuring out what the form is going to be, and then figuring out that I was in a place where I felt like better about writing it. I felt like I actually had like done a lot of the mental work I needed to do, and I was kind of the right writer to do the thing. Mm-hmm. Then, I, then the book actually kind of began became a kind of a loose draft. Or like what I was writing was not garbage, but was actually kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So.
3: OK, all right. Thank you. Um, and one thing you talk about in the book is how much working on this felt like an act of pioneering new territory and talking about writing about queerness and intimate partner violence and et cetera. And so I'm curious, um, especially since you were just talking about um, the form of the book and how you were kind of uh, trying to uh, develop the form of the book as you were processing the material of the book, um, what if any books did you keep at hand that felt like cousins Mm -hmm. or siblings um, to this work and how you were how were you able to find literary scaffolding for such a groundbreaking
2: project as you were going,
3: or do, or was there nothing that that felt like that?
2: Well, there was a lot of work. There was a lot of work that spoke to me not in terms of, the, of its content, but it really in terms of like the way that artists were approaching either writing about trauma and or like, the form of the memoir itself. So like books that I found very useful. I mean Maggie Nelson was like a huge, you know, when I when I sat. The cool thing is when you start with it with, with a house, they send you lots of free books. It's, like, a secret. No, sure. So I had, like, a giant pile of books, including Maggie Dawson's The Argonauts, which I had never read, and, and The Red Parts*, and all of her stuff that Ralph had put out. And um, I read it and was just, like, completely blown away and was like, oh, this is so beautiful, and this this feels so, like, rich. Like, the sort of way she sort of melded like memoir and essay just felt really rich to me and was really exciting. Like, made me feel very which is, like, what Good what good writing does is it makes you want to write your own shit, right? Because I was like... I feel like a weird feeling in my body. Like I feel like I want to write something. You know, and so I, and so like her. Like there was this. Um, there's this memoir that I really love by this former teacher of mine, Kevin Brockmeier, called "A Few Seconds of Radiant Filmstrip," and it's a memoir about this year of his life in middle school. It's really beautiful. He's a really beautiful writer. It's a really good book. But there's this moment halfway through the book where time freezes and his adult self comes and talks to his young self. So this obviously fictional slash speculative magical sort of gesture in the middle of what is otherwise like a very straightforward memoir. Um, There was this book, Lying by Lauren Slater, um, which is this memoir that she writes about having epilepsy, but it has a lot of really interesting sort of formal um, and sort of destabilizing elements in it. Um, There's this book, um, uh, Meet Me in Iran by Sophia Samatar that was also really useful. Brian Lynch trip's proxies I feel like there was like a lot of books that I kept kind of encountering because like, yeah it's not, I didn't invent like people have been writing like experimental nonfiction for like, a very long time you know I obviously don't know about that um, but it was really helpful to see how people were approaching it and like what sort of the I think I didn't because I didn't study nonfiction I studied fiction and so I f- and, you know I feel like fiction is a genre that I understand much more intimately and that I'm much more widely read in and so I sort of was like, oh, wow, there's, like, I didn't realize even how wide the, sort of, the boundaries of nonfiction were, like, and that's really, it was really exciting to me, it was really um, special. So, yeah, so those were books that I returned to a lot, and I would, sort of, explore and examine, and, like, try to, sort of, take, like, the, sort of, the, the, the sort of, the, the the beautiful audacity of those books, like, I feel like I really wanted to, like, channel that, and that was really important to me. Um, So, yeah, I came back to those a lot. And
3: it's really exciting to think that you could take Um, Kind of either the form or the spirit of fiction, and you know, use that when you're writing nonfiction too, which is something that I think not many people think of. They're like, oh, I'm writing nonfiction, I need to turn to nonfiction and sit to nonfiction when I'm looking at nonfiction. Well, all all of those were nonfiction that I just listed.
2: Yeah.
3: Oh, Oh, was it? Okay, okay, okay. I was thinking of myself then.
2: Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs>
3: um, all
2: right, my Oh, there we go.
3: go. Sorry. Sorry. No, no okay. it was okay. Um, OK, so uh, um, again, like talking about the, the topic of the book or kind of this broader, broader um, topic, I'm so grateful to you um, for writing this seminal book about queer intimate partner violence. I know that so many other people are too. Um, And an unfair burden that often gets placed on minorities is, as Chimamanda Ngozi Ngozi Adichie says, the danger of a single story. Is there something that your book didn't cover um, in this realm, perhaps outside the scope of your story, um, that you're hoping another book will cover in the future? Or something that, when you were working on your book, you were like, oh, this is not really something that I'm going to cover, but I really hope that something will come along and Cover in the future yeah
2: I mean everything outside of what I say <laughs> so, like, I'm like okay so like, this is the thing this is the thing that right and so the pressure the, as you said the pressure that I think writers that come from marginalized identities whether it's like people of color or writer or, or uh, queer folks or women or you know um, there's right, There's this is pressure that everybody wants when they do a thing and they're like the first to do a thing in like a certain sort of genre or whatever, there's a pressure on them to for that to be everything, and everyone's like, I have some connection with identity, and I need this book to be everything for me because I've been so starved for art about whatever whatever the identity is, um, and that pressure is like tr- is like tremendous. Like I cannot overstate like how how scary that is and how scared it made me, and I think how much it scares a lot of artists because it it the pressure then becomes immense, and it's like pressure that you didn't necessarily you know it's the pressure of like you know, the world's bullshit, basically, that sort of feels like it's falling on your head, and... Was that a human Apple reference? Oh, yes! <laughs> <laughs> it was, us. Um So, yeah, and I, I feel like there's something very... Uh, yeah, so, so like, basically, in the back of the book, like, I talk a little bit about how like, when I was doing my research, and also, like, the research was very specific, so, like, the the stuff that I was finding the most of in terms of, like, the discussion, like, the discussion that was sort of happening around queer DV sort of in the past. Like, I was finding a lot of work. It was, like, the lesbian community explicitly in the United States between the years, of 1980 and 2010. And it was, like, this conversation that was happening in different spheres, including in a bunch of, like, feminist and queer periodicals. Um, and, and so, like, when I was writing the book, I was, like, you know, I'm already kind of But there's already this sense of like, you know, that's a very specific lens that you're describing, right? That's a very specific and it excludes a lot of people. And like the conversation also, because of like it was very muddled. Like, you know, people also in these same conversations were saying like a lot of transphobic stuff. There's a lot of like, like race was involved in like multiple ways. And then also there was a lot of like confusion about BDSM and where BDSM fit into that conversation. So there would be like a lot of like ads in like old feminine, old like queer periodicals, like lesbian periodicals, and they would say like, there would be like, picnic for survivors of lesbian battering, no abusers, no some transphobic phrase, and then it would be like, no um, BDSM practitioners. Like those things were all, like it was just like this list of like people we don't want, it was like three very different categories of human beings, and it was like in an ad for like a picnic, you know, and you'd be like, oh, okay. So like no tuna fish sandwiches. (laughs) Yeah. It was just just very. It was a very strange. So yeah. Anyway. So like and so and, and also like for myself. Like I am a. You know like a white presenting woman of color who's queer, who is like from like a middle class background. Who like I have a very specific lens, and like all I can do is say like here's what happened to me. Here's the stuff that I learned. But like there are like fifty million stories to be told, and like right, the problem is that like it isn't just about like. Again, I always think about how like I took this class once on translated literature, and I remember like learning this thing, which I now know, which is like in the U.S. we translate like so little; it's like really scandalous um, every year. And they'll be like, "This is the, this is the, um, this is the Italian book this year. Like this is the Nigerian book this year." This is the like, Egyptian book this year. There's, like, one. You no, know, like, it's the one. It's the one. Um, because it's, like, we're so, like, focused. Like, we're so sort of xenophobic, and we're so focused on, like, our, on the United States that, like, we're, like we can't imagine having more than one book from of the same country. And I feel like that pressure also exists um, where it's, like, yeah, it's a like good have Like, what, 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 what now we – like, it's, like, I don't want people to be, like, I don't want people to say, like, oh, now we have the memoir about – you know, queer TV, it's like, no, no, we have, like, one book, and then I am a very specific lens, and, like, there are a lot more stories to be told, and, like, I want the book to be, like, an invitation to people who have, like, different intersections, different identities to, like, tell their own stories, because also they're, they're by by definition, different, you know, they're going to be, um, and so... So yeah, so I feel like that was like a big thing that like I sort of grappled with and like thought a lot about and like ended up writing because I they ended up writing the app for it because I was really interested in saying like here's all the research I did, here are all the books I here's all the articles I read, all the books, please someone take this and like do other stuff with it. Because like I did the thing that I could do and I want other people to do what they can do.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Um I was a heavy user of LiveJournal from 2001 <laughs> to 2009, and I, in fact, referred to the PDF of my LiveJournal while writing The Collected schizophrenia. <laughs> it was like this thousand-plus page that also at my, I also lost my, Yeah, it, it was, you know, it was from this website called LJ Book. Oh my god, yes! <laughs> yes! <laughs> that would, like, turn your LiveJournal into a PDF. Yep. Um, so. Um, Anyway, uh, so you mentioned life journal, <laughs> and I was wondering, what did life journal mean to you at the time, and does it have any relationship to in the Dreamhouse?
2: Oh, that's such a great question. I love that question. Life journal was extremely important to me. So I started writing in Live journal when I was about fifteen, and I kept it uh, about till I was twenty-five. With the, the, actually, uh, upsettingly, the big gap was like when I was dating the person who the book is about, because I didn't really do much right in there but um, but it was really it's really interesting because I have like this, this like you know like to see what I was thinking when I was 16 which is like not great not smart <laughs> but it was like very interesting and like, getting to sort of you know and there was like there was stuff that I actually didn't need to look up like there's a um, an email that I reference from somebody um, that I didn't have the email anymore, but I knew that I had written about it I knew I had like copied and pasted it in a lab journal entry and so I like and I was like, there's not, like, you know, a whole night looking for it, So like, just I was like, roughly, I think it's like this year somewhere. And I was just, like, clicking, I was like, lots of like dead JPEGs that you can't see, whatever they refer to. Or lots of like, personality quizzes that I took. Lots of, you know, like really sort of sad poems that I wrote. Like just going back and back. And then finally, I found it. And I was like, I knew it. I knew I posted it in London. It was very helpful. Um, so in that sense, it was helpful. It was helpful for some timeline stuff. Um, but that was important to me because it taught me how to write for an audience. Because I actually did for a long time, like actually have a lot. There were a lot of people who read it who didn't know me personally. Well, yeah, same. Yeah, and I think it was a way of me. I mean, it's sort of my first foray into the essay. I mean, they weren't very good. You know, my life was not very interesting. But I, I sort of got to like, I don't know, like, like, look, like think about like how, how you tell a story, like what order you, you how, what order you put information in, and like. You know, just like stuff like that, which like you know, I mean, everybody everybody does that in some way. If you if you grow up writing, um, but it was helpful not just to write, but also to have like people read it and then respond to it. Like it was actually this really like interesting sort of education. Um, and I do miss it. I miss it a lot. I'm still friends with a lot of people that I know. Like that I old like literally I have friends who like people came to my wedding. <laughs> I know. Like met through LiveJournal like many years ago. Like it was like that. It's like that. Where I've like known them for like 15 years. You know. Um, like one of my dearest, dearest friends in the world was like somebody I met through Lafayette when I was like sixteen. So, yeah. thank you.
3: Thank you. My journal. Wait, should we explain what live journal is? Oh yeah, sure. sorry, if people don't know. Oh,
2: it's doing it for me. Yeah, sorry. So, for all of you who are not olds like us, um, there used to be this thing. It was basically like Tumblr, but better. Uh, <laughs> I know Tumblr's not even nothing really anymore. I know people are using, but like, yeah, it was like Tumblr. I found Tumblr very. This is how I knew I was getting old, because I was like, I found Tumblr very confusing. I was like, I don't know how to use Tumblr. This is very weird. Um, but yeah, it was just like an old blogging platform, and the Russians bought it. It still exists, right? It does still exist. I can still. Mine's all well locked down, but you, I can still. I actually keep going to delete it, which is why I actually made the LJ book. But then, I get Like, I would cover over the delete button. And I'd be like, no so it's still there but it's a lot so like one there. of the
3: nice things about Life Journal was that you could have like different levels of privacy which is something right. that like, yeah. I really wish you could have with say Twitter like you yes. could have like well, friends true. friends only like so you could you could select certain people to have certain levels like so you could write a post that only like
2: five so people could see and that was it it was, it was great I it had like it. various filters and it, yeah. you know, it was
3: very popular among like certain like fandoms yes it was, it was very
2: fun. big for like early Harry Potter fandom which I did not participate in but I did read with great interest and then also and also like a lot of stuff I also should not have been reading um, there's a lot of smut a lot of smut Live Journal, and also <laughs> um, oh my earliest forays into like fat fashion were through Live Journal. like there were like there was this fat fashion fat sinista which I can't say give it yet um, and it was like, yeah, like people like doing like clothing swaps and like outfits of the day. It was like my first, my first like foray into the land of like dressing my body in a way that like made me happy. Um, so I have a lot of tenderness for my journal and those are the days of my journal. I can talk about live journal literally all night. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> I don't, I'll move on, but it's great, I miss it. <laughs> Is worse now. It's yeah. distinctly worse.
3: I also have, you know, there are people <laughs> at my um, Books or Magic event um, who were from Live Journal. I have like, friends um, who I've known longer than my spouse. <laughs> anyway. Okay, a little bit of a darker question. Okay. Um, I found that in working on the Plected Schizophrenia, as I ended up going through a fair amount of re-traumatization that was way harder to handle than I'd expected. And I've talked to other friends who've written memoirs who felt the same. Do you have any advice for aspiring memoirists or personal essayists, people who write about themselves and them, their lives, regarding how they may care for themselves when writing about and researching difficult material?
2: Well, well my advice is don't do anything that I did. Because <laughs> I also um, found the process of writing the book very traumatic, much more so than I thought I would. Um, so I did several not advisable things. I went away from my spouse. I write a lot of residencies, which I love. I actually write really well at residencies. I like being away from my sort of daily life. I like to kind of be like in the woods and look at a deer in the morning while I'm drinking my coffee and like no one's bothering me and I'm just like working for fiction. But I, I thought that also applied to nonfiction as it turns out. It was the absolutely wrong choice. So I was in a cabin in New Mexico, you know, thousands of miles away from my spouse um, and really depressed and really sad and just kind of a mess and it also was a residency where there was no social element some residencies like you know they have like dinner or whatever we can like you're like now I'm taking a break I'm gonna like eat some chicken and like talk to some people or whatever and there was none of that and so I was just like alone and I would be alone for days um and it was really bad um and I was in a very bad place so don't do that you know what I'm saying is be around your support network basically. Like, if you have, like, you know, make sure that like the people that you need are close to you. It, um, if you're working on something particularly hard, um, I also like stopped because I was away. I also stopped with, I mean, I was, I was like, wasn't going to therapy because my therapist was in Philadelphia, but like, he was like, We didn't have phone calls, and I was like, Yeah, sure, whatever. And then I never did it, I did it like once in like six months, and it was like awful, it was like awful, you know. Um. I think there's a a very like a conversation you have to have with yourself before you begin to embark on a thing like this which is like you know because you don't I don't think you know how you're going to react I think because I thought I did I thought I knew I thought I was actually I thought I had a sense of it and I was extremely wrong which is weird because I feel like I know myself pretty well but I was very surprised by the way that my mind went when I wrote this book and um I think you have to have a conversation with yourself about, like, are you ready? Like, are you the right writer right now? Are you ready? Are you, like, healthy enough to, like, you know, go at this material? Like, do you feel like you're in a good place or no? Um, I mean, it also made it harder that I was on a kind of deadline. And I mean, like, it was one of those situations where I I knew that if I went to, like, my publisher or my editor and said, like, I actually can't do this on this timeline, they would have been like, that's fine. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have, like, yelled at me or fought me or, you know. But I also, then, then the idea of spending more time with the book was so unbearable that I was like, I just want to get it done. I just want to, like, get it in. Like, I can't, if I have to look at this for another two seconds, I'm going to just, I don't know what, I'm going to burn something down, you know? Like I, and so I feel like I feel like that was also really hard, was, like, having the, I don't know. So I, I feel like there's no, like, clear answer, but it's, like, having a support network, being, like, mindful of your own sort of where you are, sort of mentally and physically, um, and just having, like, having plans in place for, like what it means to like, you know, re to like access parts of you that you probably haven't seen in a while, you know, and that that can take a lot of really surprising turns that you're not expecting. Thanks. Okay, okay. Um,
3: I ha- I just realized I have no idea how long I was supposed to do that for. So, <laughs> 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 who, who, who am I supposed to? to who or? am I supposed to be referring so to? Yeah. Use, uh,
1: some of you are ready. I think your questions are. There
2: you, yep. you I see over here in the yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> Okay. Um, in preparation for tonight, I recently reread in the dream house and Her Body and Other Parties. The through lines between the books really stood out to me, especially in Mothers. What worked for you in writing both fiction and memoir based on your experiences, and how do you untangle the two?
2: it's a great question. Thank you. Um so the thing that I have discovered about myself in the last few years is that to write successfully a piece of nonfiction fiction on any topic I have to write at least one short story about the topic possibly more not a very efficient way to do anything um, and so the example that I give that sort of besides you know the memoir and mothers which is a I mean you are correct in that those are you know, Mothers is like a fictional, was remote me troll approach the material fictionally. I also have a story called Blur that's not in the book, but it's in, it was in Tin House a few years ago, and that's also a story about queer duty. Um, but there's a story also in um, in. her another part, Parties called Eight Bites, which was the first story that I ever wrote about fatness and the fat body. And I wrote it because I, I had been trying for many years to write an essay about fatness, um, and it also was really struggling. Like I would write something, and I would. It was just never interesting. It was never good. Like I would write it, and I'd be like, I mean, that's an obvious point. That's not. That's not. It's not what I'm thinking. Because like you know, for not The thing about nonfiction is like, when you write nonfiction, like you're trying to describe what you think, which is like really hard to do well. Which is also why I'm suspicious of. Think pieces when people are like, if I'm like, if you can turn on your thoughts on a topic in 24 hours, like, I do not trust that. Because I, I feel like I've <laughs> been my for like four years, then I'm like, okay, I think I have an idea about like, you know, the sufficient new or whatever. So I like, um so anyway, so I, I knew I wanted to write about, like, I wanted to write an essay and I wanted to talk about like my mother's getting, my mother getting gastric bypass surgery and I, you know, I held these thoughts and then but I, like, everything I wrote was just not coming. it was just not good, and then I wrote this short story, which, like, you know, because it was a short story, I I had these fictional tools at hand, and I wrote this, like, story about a woman who gets gastric bypass surgery, and then, like, as she's losing weight, this, like, creature is, like, assembling at her home, and, like, kind of haunts her. Um, And ultimately, like, she, and cares for her. And it was only writing that story that I realized that I had this larger idea about about how our bodies are these like sort of gentle creatures that like take really good care of us. Like they're like ant beast from a wrinkle in time, you know? And like we just hate them and we're horrible to them for no reason. And all they do is take care of us. And like that's like a truly monstrous thing. And it was only when I had sort of gathered my thoughts through a short story that I then felt able to write this essay. And then I wrote this essay called The Trash You Has Spoken, which is like I'm really proud of and I feel like And uh, I remember writing it and being like, that's what I think. Aha! I found it. Um, and so, anyway, so it's just like this is like my, this is my process, which is like so useless. I write nonfiction so slowly. I write like one es- one good essay a year, basically. Um, but yeah. So anyway, so Mother's was the first, and Mother's was interesting because you know I wrote it. I wrote the first part of it, like all the way up until, for those of you who read it, the, the description of the house where she's like going to the, the fantasy house that she and her. X shared and I actually like well, wrote that while I was still dating my ex the ex of the book of the memoir and then I got to the end of that and I was like I don't know what it comes next okay and I tucked it away in a file somewhere and then I was at Clarion um, which is a science fiction and fantasy writers workshop like immediately after I broke up with my ex and I, I pulled it out and I was like, "Holy shit! I know how this story ends." It was like three years. It was like, no, it was like two years later, and I was like, "Oh, and now I know the ending to the story, but I didn't know. Like, I didn't realize. And I realized, and looking back on it, that I had already built the story about abuse into the first part of it. You know, which was like, like my subconscious did that. I didn't do it. that. Was just like some little, you know. Um, anyway, so yeah. So as it turns out, like it's helpful for me to have like fiction, like the sort of the, the breadth and the width of fiction the ability to kind of like do whatever I want, make up whatever I want, move things around, like introduce like really wild sort of speculative elements, and that kind of gives me space to then write, um, to write nonfiction. So yeah, I just, I find it very helpful. Not a very efficient way of doing it, but it's just what I that's what I do. That's such a cool
3: narrative. I love that. gosh Okay. Um, this question is: What is your definition of home?
2: Hmm. That's a personal. It's like a, a, a give. Come back in four years. Right? Yeah. Is what it is right. <laughs> <laughs> um. What is home? I guess. I mean, it's so funny because I taught a haunted house class. At, I teach at Penn and I taught a haunted house class last spring. And we talked a lot about what is a house, like, what is home? And also, what is a haunting? Like, we sort of started with a very, very big basic question, We like, moved into like texts we were reading. But, you know, I, I feel like a body can be a home, you know? Like, I think there's something about, I mean, because home and also a house are different words, right? And like home, I think is about like safety and familiarity. Like one of the essays we read for that class was this, this is really good essay by Jamaica Kincaid that was written in like, I don't know, like the late 90s, which is about her finding this house that she really loved and like moving into it. But the essays sort of a meditation on how like in the United States, like children never live in the homes that they grew up in. But like in a lot of other countries, like children do live in the houses that they grew up in. Like they, you know um and the ways in which like families think about houses and homes um so it's also like a very like big sort of cultural question of like yeah like where do you belong I don't think of like the house I spent the majority of my time growing up like I don't think of that as my home I don't even think in Allentown which is where I'm from as my home like I haven't in a very long time and I remember like when I was growing up my mom my mom was from Wisconsin and she missed it a lot and we never looked near it ever in my lifetime and um whenever we would we'd go once a year we go visit my grandmother in Wisconsin we'd drive there and she would always say I'm going home I'm going home and she at that about like Allentown which is like where I live and where she had been for many decades she, but she would never say I'm going home and we'd, we'd be going to Wisconsin so I feel like the idea of like what home is it's, like very specific I think to every person and I think it is about like safety and familiarity and it's like maybe where you want to be um, regardless of where that actually is. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just saying sentences, that I hope that's a good, smart <laughs> answer.
3: Um, yeah. No, I agree. That was very challenging. <laughs> I think you. I think you did. Thank you. you, did you. Did a, I a, <laughs> a hallmark of abuse is the abuser's assertion that nothing is wrong and nothing is happening. Did you struggle with trusting your experience throughout the writing of this book? If so, how did you push through this?
2: Yeah. Yes, I mean, it's the short short answer. Um, I had this very weird experience sort of late in the editorial process where I discovered that when I was walking through a specific scene in the book, I, for some reason, at some moment, I began to invert the direction I was walking, and it's not relevant to the scene. Like this, the direction I was walking, like from one place to another, versus from you know, it had no bearing on anything that was actually happening. But the fact that my brain wasn't sure and began to second. I began to second guess myself. Really bugged me. really bugged me. And it made me feel. And I mean, it, it's weird. It's like I think it's a side effect of, of. I mean, it's a side effect of gaslighting, right? Is that you? Be, you? You doubt. This is why I think writing the book for me. One of the reasons it was so hard is I think while writing it, I I, I had this sort of moment of. Um, Reckoning with how bad the damage was, it like worked far worse than I ever thought it was, and and I think there were there's many moments in the process where I I could feel myself like having these doubts about stuff like the direction I was walking, which again irrelevant, it doesn't actually, it made no bearing on anything that was happening. But I was like, why can't I remember? What does that mean? Or there would be like pieces of it where like I'd be like, yeah, I don't I don't think I remember enough about this moment to write about it. Like, why did my brain jettison that? Or, like, there was this other thing that happened where, because, I mean, I don't want to spoil anything, but, like, my spouse was around for some of the events of the book, and and she she had read a draft of it, and at some point she said, you know, it's funny how you didn't include that that time we went to that pet store where, like, you saw the ferrets and you're making jokes about the ferrets all cuddling, and she was like, telling the story. And as soon as like, she said it, like, I remembered it. But I was like, my brain had, like, sent that somewhere else. If she did that to me, I would have never remembered that detail in 10 million years. Just because she happened to remember it, then it jogged my memory. And I was like, why did my brain get rid of that detail? That's, brains are so weird. So I feel like, yeah, there were a lot of moments where, like, I, I, yeah, and then, you know, and then I'd like a scene, and then, like, one thing in the scene that seemed sort of like, it was, like, dominoes, and I'd be, like, and then it would, like, lead me to some other room that I didn't even know was there. And, and, which I mean, house metaphors, right, but, like, it, yeah, it was, it was, like, these doors would just appear and I'd be, like, following them, and I'd be, like, brains are horrible, and also trauma is horrible, and, like, you know, and, like, it, yeah, and it was scary, and I, I had a lot of, sort of, moments of, like, yeah, like, I, I of, like, doubting my, yeah, doubting myself. Sorry, I forget the actual original question. Was that, that's the only oh, answer, yeah. right? That's the answer, Okay. <laughs> sorry. Okay. No, that was me. Okay, oh, great, okay, I, I did it. <laughs>
3: um, did you feel that uh, writing in the dream house was something you needed to write for yourself or others?
2: So I have this it's interesting because this book my first book I love, I mean I love *Providing of Other Parties I'm really proud of it I wrote that book for myself, and I think people—I mean, people write for all kinds of reasons. But I, I really think that if you try to write for other people too much, you—you'll never be able to make anything because there are too many other people. There's only one of you, right? There's one of you to please, and there's like fifty bajillion other people, you know. And like, you ultimately have to be writing a thing that you need, you know, that's like for you. And so I feel like for the first book, like that was the experience that, that I had with it. And this one was really different in that, like, even though it was also a thing that I needed, and like I said, you know, I I had to, like, pass it. I had to kind of get it out of my body. Like, I also did feel like I was writing it for other people, which maybe is part of why it was so hard. Like, maybe that was part of my problem was, like, because I did feel this, like, sense of, like, obligation, this sense of, like, it already belongs to other people and I don't even know how to, like, you know, where I was, like, holding onto it. I was, like, I need to just, like, make this work while I still have it because it's soon it's going to go onto a world of, like... I, you know and like it's not going to be and, and people are going to like want it and like need something from it and like and that, and I could feel that and I think that that was part of why I was really struggling um, so I think it was a little bit of it was both I mean I think for me it was like an just like kind of getting it out of my system and I think for I think I just kept feeling uh, thinking about how like you know when I was looking for work like this book and I couldn't find it or I found very very little of it you know made me feel really alone and like I think that I think that when you tell people whether explicitly or implicitly through just what choices you make about like what gets published or what gets put out in the world like when you tell people that they're alone that like you're such a freak that like nothing you're feeling or experiencing has ever happened to any person ever before in the history of mankind so like tough shit right it's like a kind of violence right it's like saying to somebody like you are alone when you're not you know like and and I was thinking a lot about how like you know it's like the stripping of context from people and communities is is a kind of violence and it tells them yeah it's like it's like you think that you have no tradition but there is a tradition it just keeps getting wiped away constantly right and and, and that's horrible and that's like that's a real that's really awful and and it's like, and abusers do that right like abuse is about like removing context from people where it's like there is nothing else but like me and you and like there's this sense of like focus. And I just sort of feel like I feel like that co- you have to restore that context, like for for people, like that you you must do that. Um, sorry, I've also forgotten the question again. I keep getting in these little holes, and then I keep forgetting what the actual question was. I
3: think that's a good place. Is that a good answer? Okay, that's a good place. Great, to
2: awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights bookstore and publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.